1 Timothy 3, we're looking at that part of the Apostles' Creed where we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. So we want to look at that this morning. I'd like to read from 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. And then at the end of this chapter, at verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar in buttress of the truth. Great indeed is, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. So we're looking at this phrase, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and in the communion of the saints. One of my heroes is a Presbyterian minister from the 1800s, a man by the name of John B. Adger. Um, Adger is probably not the proper way of saying his name, He was one of the French Huguenot families that were in the Charleston area. And if you ever go to Charleston and you go down to the waterfront, even to this day, there are things from his family there along the waterfront. The wharves, way back in the 1800s into today, are known as Adger Wharves. John B. Adger was a Presbyterian minister. He was primarily in Charleston. He had a home up in the north or upcountry part of the state, as they would say, around Pendleton, uh, South Carolina. And he and his family served for an extended period of time as missionaries in Armenia. Now, when he was in Armenia, he tells the story of the, the difficulties that he had as a Protestant missionary with all the Roman Catholics that were there. And he said one day that he was coming home to his house, and he noticed he had left the home under the care of, of some of the Armenian people watching over the children and watching over the house. And as he came to the house, he saw the Catholic priests slinking out the door and darting away. He says, there was no doubt in my mind what that Catholic priest had been doing. He had gone in there and he had baptized my children. (laughs) 
And, and Adger, uh, you know, he, he looked at it, and he just thought, you know, there's no end to this conflict. There's no end to this testiness. And uh, certainly it was probably much more strongly felt then than it is today. You know, I grew up in Lake Worth, Florida, and uh, the Catholic Church was a big part of our area. We had parochial schools, and uh, a lot of these kids were schooled entirely different than the rest of us in the neighborhood. And I was back there in the era when uh, the Catholics were still eating fish on Friday, and so we had all manner of caricatures and names for them, and no one liked the Catholics on Friday night because Proctor's Seafood Restaurant was an impossible place to resort to. If you went down there at 5 o'clock on Friday night at Proctor's Restaurant, the line was already out the door, and the longer you waited, the line wrapped around the building and down the street. You knew what was going on. The Roman Catholics were not going to eat meat. Now, you heard the story about the Roman Catholic man in the 1950s who moved to California. Well, he, uh, he wasn't Roman Catholic, but the area was Roman Catholic. So when he got there, and he had this uh, house with a, a wooden fence that was head high in the backyard, and every Friday he'd come home from work, and to celebrate the weekend he'd fire up the grill, and he would get the biggest steak that he could, and he would lay it on the grill, and that steak aroma would just flood the neighborhood, and all the Catholics were just having a fit. And so they finally, they decided, well, we got to do something about this, so they went to extremes to get this man into the Catholic Church, and after a long period of time, Sure enough, he was accepted into the Catholic Church, and the priest took the holy water and it sprinkled it on the man and said, you were born a Protestant, but now you're a Catholic. And so off he went. Well, all the neighborhood breathed a great big sigh of relief until the following Friday. A week had elapsed, and sure enough, there was this same man. He had this huge, even bigger than usual steak on the grill, and he was seen there with a little shaker of water, and he was shaking water on this, and he says, you were born a cow, but now you're a fish. So, <laughs> Well, it's like that. It's like that. You know, I don't we, we have, who have grown up in churches, and I think we're pretty well represented here. I, I, I think, yeah, we've got some Presbyterians, but we could go through the alphabet, and all the churches pretty close would be represented here. You have seen godly people in the main in your church, but in your church you've also said, we've got people on the roll, even people who attend, and what do they need? They need Christ. They're there, they're members, but they haven't come to faith in Christ. In the Catholic Church, you'll have the same thing. You'll have people that are there who are not Christians, but you will have people that are there that are Christians. The, the Apostles' Creed doesn't divide us, it unites us. It unites us with true Christians in 
every single church, whether the people from the distant past, the present, or the future, the Apostles' Creed was given to us by these, these early church fathers as a means of uniting us in true faith in Christ Jesus. So we say we believe. I believe. I believe in the Holy Catholic. The Nicene Creed says in apostolic church. I believe in the communion of saints. Now there's two ways of looking at this. There is the Roman Catholic way. Now notice the difference between Holy Catholic and Roman Catholic. There's a big difference. When we say it's the church is holy from the Roman Catholic position, the position is the Catholic Church is holy because it creates holy people and it does not engage itself in outrageous sin. That would be the Roman Catholic way of looking at this idea of the church being holy. The Protestant manner of looking at this would be that the word holy means set apart or consecrated. And we see the church as set apart and consecrated by God the Father. And we see that it was built by the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember it was his words, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not stand against it. And we believe that it's holy because it's been being reformed and purified by the work of the Holy Spirit continuously from its beginning all the way to its end. You see things in the purification at the very beginning of the church where Ananias and Sapphira, you remember their story, how they kept things back and sought to be deceitful to the apostles, and there was a purification by these two men, the, these two people, husband and wife, both dying. There has been the nurturing of the church and the advance of the church by the continual outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, time and time again so that the church continues to advance. So there are two views here of what this word holy means. The idea of Catholic, from the Roman Catholic position, the church is Catholic because there's only one church, and that one church has spread its influence and power throughout the entire globe. And because of this, they see that the church is universal. The Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, they say, is Catholic because it covers the globe. Now, we say that it is Catholic, and what we mean by that is universal, and we believe that it is a fellowship. That the Catholic Church is a fellowship, and it's a fellowship of true believers. And these true believers we see are taken from every tribe, in every tongue, in every nation, and therefore we can't say that there is any distinction in a Christian whether he was born Jew or Gentile, whether he was born barbarian. Scythian, 
slave, or free. That the church enfolds any and every person who genuinely, from their heart, confesses Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And so we would be like John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley made a comment that was somewhat like this. We have our differences, but tell me your heart is for Christ, then give me your arm. In other words, he saw, you know, one of his great accomplices in his uh, evangelistic work was George Whitfield, And he would be more of what we would call a Presbyterian. And the two of them were just arm in arm in the Great Awakening uh, in the 1700s here in the United States or in, in the American colonies. And so we see Catholic meaning a true fellowship of true believers that transcends all the pettiness that might normally keep people apart. We are one in the Lord. Now, it's apostolic. In the Catholic tradition, it's apostolic because of Peter. You remember the words to Peter that he was given the keys of the kingdom. Now, if you were to look at an apostolic symbol today, or a papal symbol today, there's various aspects of the papal symbol, but one of the papal symbols is that it holds the keys. That the Pope literally holds the keys to eternal life. And so the Roman Catholic Church says that the church is apostolic because it's led by a pope and that there is a hierarchy of cardinals and bishops and various sundry other orders that are Roman Catholic and that there is in the history of the Roman Catholic Church an unbroken succession of the laying on of hands that began with Jesus was communicated to the first original apostles and that has been carried on in an unbroken tradition even till today. And so they see that their church is apostolic by this continuous laying on of the hands. We who are Protestants have looked at the apostolic aspect of this and said no, we believe that the church that we're a part of is apostolic because we hold to the apostles' doctrines as they are found in the Gospels, Acts, and in the Epistles, that our church, as much as we can, looks like their church. We have elders slash uh, bishops, which is this word overseer, and we have deacons, and we have pastors, and we have teachers, and we conduct ourselves in a way that doesn't recognize the Pope as the head of the church, but that Jesus Christ is the king and the head of the church. Now, that's not to say that we've got it perfectly right. Uh, right after I was ordained to the ministry in Mississippi, I was put on a commission 
to go into a rural part of Mississippi to take a church that had been in the other Presbyterian denomination that was joining the PCA. So there were about three ruling elders and three teaching elders, and we drove up in a car, and we went to this church about 7 o'clock at night, and we began to meet. Well, one of the questions that one of the men asked of about half a dozen church officers from this little uh, Mississippi church was that one of them said, who is the head of the church? And one of the younger men, by younger, I mean he's probably in his 50s, he pointed over this man in the 80s and he says, Mr. Bonds is the head of the church. <laughs> well, you see, you can get it wrong and be a Protestant here. Christ is the king and head of the church, not Mr. Bonds or whoever it would be. So we need to understand that. We believe in an apostolic church because we hold to the apostolic doctrines about the church and what is to be preached. You know, unfortunately, in the apostolic tradition of the Catholic church, there is the idea of papal infallibility. So that the Pope makes no mistakes in their mind. There are the things about the mass sacrifice. Because they believe not that we are having a Lord's Supper, but that Christ is actually being re-sacrificed every time a Mass is conducted. That Christ is being sacrificed again. They also believe in some peculiar things concerning Mary. They believe in her immaculate conception. Now, this goes two different ways. Immaculate conception would be that she was conceived immaculately. And then the other aspect of this, that because of who she was, she had no sin when Christ, by the Holy Spirit, was conceived in her womb. Immaculate conception. They believe in, Jesus, in Mary's perpetual virginity. So we were out here about three years ago. The Russian Orthodox Church that's out in the Bolingbrook area was having an information weekend, and I thought, I don't know anything about these people. So I went out to listen, and they had an older guy there who had been everything. He had been Baptist. He had been Catholic. He would have been, I mean, I don't think he missed a trick, but now he was Russian Orthodox. So I, I was listening in spellbound amazement to this whole thing, but then the question came up about Mary's perpetual virginity, and they said, yes, that's what we believe. So the, I don't know that this is true, say, of the Greek Orthodox Church, but the Roman Catholic and the Russian Orthodox Church believe in Mary's perpetual virginity, that these brothers and sisters of Jesus that are mentioned were not hers. They believe in the bodily assumption of Mary at the end of her life, that she did not die, but like Elijah or like Enoch, that she was taken up into heaven. 
And they believe in Mary as being the mediatrix. That would be that she is our go-between. So when they pray, they pray, Mary, Mother of God, have mercy on us. That grace is mediated through her to us. Now, just the, the clear thing for us in this regards is we do not find this in reference to the word of God. None of this is mentioned in any way, shape, or form or even hinted at in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. So when we say apostolic, we mean scriptural. When they say apostolic, they mean papal. So those would be the big differences there. We say that we believe in the church and they would, the Roman Catholics would say, yes, the one and only church, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. That would be their perspective, that all the rest of us were sects or cults or something like that. A typical Roman Catholic position today would be that Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are the logical outworkings of the Protestant Reformation. They would, that's the way they would look at that. And so we would say, no, they deny things about the Christ. They would, the Catholics, Roman Catholics would say, no, they have just carried your thinking to its logical conclusions. That's the way they look at things. But that the church is the sole dispenser of salvation through the keys which are given to uh, Peter. Now, they and us hold to a common way of speaking, and that would be outside of the church. This is a classic phrase. Outside of the church, there is no ordinary means of salvation. When the Roman Catholic Church says that, they mean outside the Roman Catholic Church. You should not expect any eternal salvation. So that's, that's their view. But we believe that the, the church is made out of people throughout the world who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who gather together in small assemblies to worship the Lord, to avail themselves of the general means of grace, the scriptures, the preaching of the word, prayers, the administration of the sacraments, and in this case for us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we would say that the church is represented uh, like that. Now, today it was kind of an interesting thing. Lucy Thigpen is in room 617 in the Heart Tower. Now, if you ever go to the Heart Tower, hopefully it's to visit, and you're looking out those windows to the east, there's a beautiful sight. If you look off hard to the right, you're going to see three very small steeples. Now, if you look a little towards the center of the view to the uh, south, you'll see one other steeple. And then if you look a little further over towards, I guess it would be uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard, 
you'll see something of particular interest to our church, a very clear view of this white frame structure with a steeple on it. That's the original First Presbyterian Church. (laughs) That's this church. At some point in time, when this current sanctuary was erected, the old sanctuary was moved. I think that's, it's not Hawthorne Street. I don't know what street it is. It's, It's on Oglethorpe. Okay, over on Oglethorpe. And the black families that were worshiping at our church began to worship in the church that they had always worshiped in. So that's how that church got there. And then if you look right there, there are two more churches on the land. You look out there and you see seven different churches. How many of them do you think are all in the same denomination with one another? Now the next question is, How many of those churches represent local congregations of true believers? Uh, All of them. So what would we say is true about each and every one of the congregations that meet in those churches? They are expressions of the true church of Jesus Christ. That's what they represent. And you see, we should look at them that way, And we should always look at them that way, and we should hope that they would look at at us in the same manner. So when we say church, this is what we're meaning. And when we talk about the communion of saints, there's really about three structures in the way of thinking of this communion. Maybe in its earliest understanding, the idea of the communion of the saints was this that the saints, people who genuinely believe in Jesus Christ, they could be just as much a rascal as Jacob was in the Old Testament. Okay? Jacob's name means? Deceiver. Deceiver. (laughs) How many of y'all got Jacob's? Don't answer that. Uh, (laughs) But, okay, here's Jacob. There are people like that in our church. Some of you got suspicions about me, and I know that. So, (laughs) Mom always said it takes one. All right, so we're all together in this. All right, saints are not perfect. They're people who genuinely believe in Jesus Christ. They may have small faith. They may have immense faith. But they have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes them a saint. They had communion with the things of God. They had communion and worship. We believe that we could go any place people are worshiping and worship with them if they're the people of God. When you go to Haiti to go to worship, you I don't know what you better bring, but you better bring something because it's not like what we're doing here in the United States. And it is a joy to be there, Uh, but I won't go any further. It it is extraordinary. But we should be able to worship with any of the people of God in communion. We have communion with the same scriptures, with the same sacraments, with the same promises, with the same Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, with the same angels. 
That's one way of looking at communion of the saints. Then the other would be the primarily the idea would be this, that we have a communion with the saints that are in the past, we have a communion with all the saints in the present, and we have a communion with all the saints that will come to be in the future. Now, a lot, long time ago, especially in rural areas, when a church was established, what was the second thing that was established with it? Huh? Cemetery. Cemetery. My buddy David Gilleran was in the Clio P. River Church in south, extreme southeast Alabama. And I saw him at a general assembly a couple of years ago. I don't remember which one. But David was way across the room, and he saw me, and he was just a coming. I mean, it was knees and elbows, and you just, he was coming. You could, I thought, my lands, I don't know what David's going to tell me, but it's going to be good. And he came up, and he says, you're never going to believe what happened in the Clio Church. I said, what? Says this dear old saint died from somewhere, but she'd been raised in that church. She left the church two million dollars. Now this church, you could take the whole thing and put it in this side of this room and have a whole lot left over. And outside was the cemetery. I says that's amazing. He says it's even more amazing than that. The way the lawyer wrote the will, it was left for the cemetery. <laughs> A lot of churches used to believe that they had so many members. Some of them were inside the building and some of them were outside the building. That is a very legitimate way of looking at the church. That's the way our church is. We're a part of the church militant. And we're a part of the church triumphant. The triumphant church is united to us and we're united to them. Now when we come to this, we have to look at the logic of the creed. And I think we will, got five minutes. The logic of the creed is this. That the Apostles' Creed talks about the Holy Spirit prior to speaking about the Holy Catholic Church. The Father loves the Church, the Son gave his life for the Church, and the Holy Spirit gave birth to the Church. And so the Holy Spirit is to be comprehended before we seek to comprehend the Church. After comprehending the Church, then we have to see what follows. That's where there will be a communion of saints. That's where there will be forgiveness of sins. That's where the hope of the resurrection of the body will come. And that's where the teaching concerning everlasting life will come. So when we look at the logic of the creed, it is there to structure our thinking First the Holy Spirit, then the church, then the communion of saints, and then all the benefits of salvation that flow from Christ. Christ said, 
I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and so we look at this and we seek to understand what do these things mean. Again, we seek to understand the authority of the scriptures in these things. When we talk about which is correct between the Protestants and the Catholics, we believe there was an Apostles' Creed. Then there was a deforming of the church by the traditions of papal authority, Mariology, and the Mass. Then we believe that there was a Protestant Reformation. Most of us who lived in the church in the 60s remember one of the, the champion cries of that era, let's get back to the early church. We'd had enough of hierarchy and enough of traditions in the church that we thought paralyzed the church. That's exactly what the Protestants sought to do. What does the word Protestant begin with? Protest. They were protesting against the deformities. They wanted the church to return to the teachings of the simple Apostles' Creed. The last thing today is today again we look back. We look back to all Christ's purpose and accomplished and commanded. That's what the church is to do. Today we live in a communion and we live in a confession. We need to confess together. We need to confess our faith in unity with one another. Some will choose the Apostles' Creed and others will use other ways, but we all seek to confess the past and to carry forward the purposes of Christ and the expansion of the church in the world. And lastly, today we anticipate. We anticipate that there is going to be a complete fulfillment in the future, a complete and full communion with God and that there's going to be a complete and full communion with all the saints. So this is what we're looking at when we look at the Apostles' Creed. Now we're going to spend some time in the next couple of weeks just looking at the church because where it just gets one line, it's really where the creed is moving. So that this church needs to be more comprehended. You need to be more and more in love with your church and one of the things I just implore you to do, you know people that live left and right of you and you move in their midst all day long and they are unchurched. And we need to do something to encourage them to come and worship the Lord Jesus Christ with us in our church. And I'm sure most all of you represent churches where Christ is preached with great purity and great sincerity. And that should be our goal. We should love our church. And we should seek to see it build up for the glory of Christ. Well, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're our God and we're your people. And we ask that you would bless us and that we would be a part of building up the Holy Catholic Church here in Macon. In Christ's name, amen.